episode 40. He remembered the room where they lived, a dark, close-smelling room that seemed half-filled by a bed with a white counterpane. There was a gas ring in the fender and a shelf where food was kept, and on the landing outside there was a brown earthenware sink common to several rooms. He remembered his mother's statuesque body bending over the gas ring to stir at something in a saucepan. Above all, he remembered his continuous hunger and the fierce, sordid battles at mealtimes. He would ask his mother naggingly over and over again why there was not more food, and he would shout and storm at her. He even remembered the tones of his voice, which was beginning to break prematurely and sometimes boomed in a peculiar way. Or he would attempt a sniveling note of pathos in his efforts to get more than his share. His mother was quite ready to give him more than his share. She took it for granted that he, the boy, should have the biggest portion. But however much she gave him, he invariably demanded more. At every meal, she would beseech him not to be selfish and to remember that his little sister was sick and also needed food. But it was no use. He would cry out with rage when she stopped ladling. He would try to wrench the saucepan and spoon out of her hands. He would grab bits from his sister's plate. He knew that he was starving the other two, but he could not help it. He even felt that he had a right to it. The clamorous hunger in his belly seemed to justify him. Between meals, if his mother did not stand guard, he was constantly pilfering at the wretched store of food on the shelf. One day, a chocolate ration was issued. There had been no such issue for weeks or months past. He remembered quite clearly that precious little morsel of chocolate. It was a two-ounce slab. They still talked about ounces in those days, to be shared between the three of them. It was obvious that it ought to be divided into three equal parts. Suddenly, as though he were listening to somebody else, Winston heard himself demanding in a loud, booming voice that he should be given the whole piece. His mother told him not to be greedy. There was a long, nagging argument that went round and round with shouts, whines, tears, remonstrances, bargainings. His tiny sister, clinging to her mother with both hands, exactly like a baby monkey, sat looking over her shoulder at him with large, mournful eyes. In the end, his mother broke off three quarters of the chocolate and gave it to Winston, giving the other quarter to his sister. The little girl took hold of it and looked at it dully, perhaps not knowing what it was. Winston stood watching her for a moment. Then, with a sudden swift spring, he had snatched the piece of chocolate out of his sister's hand and was fleeing for the door. Winston! Winston! his mother called after him. Come back! Give your sister back her chocolate! He stopped, but did not come back. His mother's anxious eyes were fixed on his face. 
Even now, he was thinking about the thing. He did not know what it was that was on the point of happening. His sister, conscious of having been robbed of something, had set up a feeble wail. His mother drew her arm round the child and pressed its face against her breast. Something in the gesture told him that his sister was dying. He turned and fled down the stairs with the chocolate growing sticky in his hand. He never saw his mother again. After he had devoured the chocolate, he felt somewhat ashamed of himself and hung about in the streets for several hours until hunger drove him home. When he came back, his mother had disappeared. This was already becoming normal at that time. Nothing was gone from the room except his mother and his sister. They had not taken any clothes, not even his mother's overcoat. To this day, he did not know with any certainty that his mother was dead. It was perfectly possible that she had merely been sent to a forced labor camp. As for his sister, she might have been removed, like Winston himself, to one of the colonies for homeless children. Reclamation centers, they were called. These centers had grown up as a result of the Civil War. Or she might have been sent to the labor camp along with his mother. Or simply left somewhere or other to die. The dream was still vivid in his mind. Especially the enveloping, protecting gesture of the arm in which its whole meaning seemed to have been contained. His mind went back to another dream of two months ago. Exactly as his mother had sat on the dingy white quilted bed with the child clinging to her. So she had sat in the sunken ship far underneath him and drowning deeper every minute, but still looking up at him through the darkening water. He told Julia the story of his mother's disappearance. Without opening her eyes, she rolled over and settled herself into a more comfortable position. I expect you were a beastly little swine in those days, she said indistinctly. Oh, children are swine. Yes, but the real point of the story. From her breathing, it was evident that she was going off to sleep again. He would have liked to continue talking about his mother. He did not suppose, from what he could remember of her, that she had been an unusual woman, still less an intelligent one. And yet she had possessed a kind of nobility, a kind of purity, simply because the standards that she obeyed were private ones. Her feelings were her own and could not be altered from outside. It would not have occurred to her that an action which is ineffectual, thereby becomes meaningless. If you loved someone, you loved him. And when you had nothing else to give, you still gave him love. When the last of the chocolate was gone, his mother had clasped the child in her arms. It was no use. It changed nothing. It did not produce more chocolate. It did not avert the child's death or her own, but it seemed natural to her to do it. The refugee woman in the boat had also covered the little boy with her arm, which was no more use against the bullets than a sheet of paper. 
The terrible thing that the party had done was to persuade you that mere impulses, mere feelings were of no account, while at the same time robbing you of all power over the material world. When once you were in the grip of the party, what you felt or did not feel, what you did or refrained from doing, made literally no difference. Whatever happened, you vanished, and neither you nor your actions were ever heard of again. You were lifted clean out of the stream of history. And yet to the people of only two generations ago, this would not have seemed all important because they were not attempting to alter history. They were governed by private loyalties, which they did not question. What mattered were individual relationships and a completely helpless gesture, an embrace, a tear, a word spoken to a dying man could have value in itself. The proles, it suddenly occurred to him, had remained in this condition. They were not loyal to a party or a country or an idea. They were loyal to one another. For the first time in his life, he did not despise the proles or think of them merely as an inert force which would one day spring to life and regenerate the world. The proles had stayed human. They had not become hardened inside. They had held on to the primitive emotions which he himself had to relearn by conscious effort. And in thinking this, he remembered without apparent relevance how a few weeks ago he had seen a severed hand lying on the pavement and had kicked it into the gutter as though it had been a cabbage stalk.